Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. As you know, a lot of markets, especially like Idaho, like we're, we're going through a growth spurt right now where, you know, we have a 2% vacancy and have had, we have not crested three and a half percent in four years. Mm-hmm. You know, so we've been, we need more, you know, it doesn't matter if you want to do a value add, you can do that too, if you can find it, but right. we need more. So there's, there's, there's demand there. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to invest like a pro. My guest today is Shannon Robnett. Shannon has been involved in real estate for over 40 years, and he's personally been involved in over 200 million in real estate transactions, covering multifamily, office, professional, industrial storage, and everything in between. So we're really lucky to have Shannon here today. He's a wealth of experience, and I'm sure he's going to drop some good knowledge bombs on us. So Shannon, thank you for joining. Kent, thank you so much for inviting me to your corner of the world. Yeah, absolutely. So, 40 years of experience. I mean, you know, you, you don't look like you're that old. You don't you don't look like you're in your 60s. So, when did you start? Yeah, the truth is I grew up in a in a real estate family. You know, my mom was a realtor, my dad was a general contractor. They did developments together. I mean, I learned about a 1031 at the dinner table, right? I mean, I, I watched my parents decide what to sell to buy something else, to sell a building for a piece of land to to do this, to do that. And then I got to go clean those up. I got to go frame those. I got to go work in those week in and week out. You know, I, I'd like to refer to it as as slave labor at the time, but it was really an apprenticeship. It really brought me to a point that by the time I was 19 years old, I couldn't do anything else as successfully as I could do what I was shown as a child. I was I was you know 18 years old with 11 years of experience. Wow, that's we could uh, think all wish we we grew up around that dinner table. I think mean, most of us are coming into it much later in life and discovering the uh, the value of real estate. So that that's a fantastic head start. You know, it really was, and it was awesome to see how you know my dad is the the son of a union mechanic. My mom, you know, came from a chicken ranching background. Her great grandfather was in real estate back in, before the Great Depression. But you know, to see how just Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, worked out that I had, I had Rich Dad, you know, I had the one or I had Poor Dad, actually, you know, I had the one that was putting deals together constantly and, and watching that. And, and then when I read the book, 
it was kind of funny because I read the book when it first came out and I'm like, dude, that guy's talking about my dad, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, but it took a book for me to really get what I had growing up, you know? And, but I'm, I'm reading it going, yeah, I never got those nice tennis shoes. I never had a nice car. You know, everything I had was, was, you know, not that because everything my dad and my mom had was in real estate, you know? So you got and to learn the value. To yeah. And it allowed them to retire early with cash flow. Yeah. You learn the value of entrepreneurship, not only real estate, but entrepreneurship right from the yeah, beginning. And it wasn't called the cash flow quadrant game in, in our house. It was just called get your butt to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's awesome. So, so you fell in love with real estate at an early age, you understand the value. And then, you know, as you started your own career, you know, what, what have you decided to focus on? I mean, what's your niche? You know, my very first deal was a deal that I did. I was working on a project for my dad and I got to know the neighbors and, you know, she was in her late 60s, early 70s, and she was starting to have some signs of dementia. Her son was in his late 30s and it was time for him to get out of mom's basement and they wanted to sell the property. And on the job, I got to know my crane operator and he needed a yard with, you know, a couple acres. And so I put that property under contract with, with not my last 500 bucks. It was my only 500 bucks. And I put that property in a contract and I went and I got a contract signed by the, the crane operator and flipping wasn't a thing then. So I literally went to closing hoping he would show up because that's how I was. I signed everything for both, both my buy and my sell and he showed up and, and validated it. And, and that was my first transaction. But what I saw out of that was that by solving people's problems, I could create a whole niche. I could be more than just a builder. I could be a developer with no inventory. I could be someone that clients would come to me and go, I really want to build a warehouse. What do I do? Instead of being the guy that, that is only building for profit, is only doing one side of the thing, I could be involved in it all. And then as I began to see not only my clients' needs, I saw how I could do a building for myself and I could get more of this for myself. And then I started talking with people and I started involving some partnerships and I started involving some, some people that, you know, Hey, we just built a building for you and that worked out really well. And you liked the experience. What about coming in and, and being a partner with me on the building next door or something like that? And, and I just began to grow a portfolio. And, you know, I, I often make fun of us that are, you know, 48 years old that, you know, we don't have the terminology that millennials have, you know, house hacking was never a term when I was growing up, it was just called being broke. And pivoting was not, you know, that wasn't a term we used either. We just had to go figure out what happened when we ran into a roadblock. But this whole aspect, this whole thought process of syndication, really of bringing in multiple partners to bring you to a place that you could take on bigger projects is, again, another thing that we did, but we never called it syndication. And so, as I've grown I've been able to take my building experience, bring in some partners that have the financial backing, some things like that. And I've really kind of created something different because I'm really construction driven. I'm really development driven instead of looking to be a value add you know, developer or value add syndicator. Gotcha. So very, very interesting. So, so tell us a little bit more about what you are doing now. So you're doing, you're doing ground up development, right? You, you build a model uh, that sounds pretty unique to be able to do that. So, so digging that a little bit more, I mean, tell us about what you're doing today. Well, you know, the first thing, Kent, as you know, 
you can do whatever you want with the world of real estate. And that, that's kind of a cool thing. But one of the things that, that I've done is I've looked at the difference between ground up and value add. And I've looked at the fact that, you know, value add, you're going out and you're buying cash flow. And that assumption is that you're, you're buying safety. And yet when you're building ground up, you're, you don't have anything there. You've got to create everything. There is no cash flow. And so you're buying risk. And really, that's not the case at all. Let's take a look at one of the projects we've currently got going. It's a, it's a 36-unit ground-up multifamily project in Nampa, Idaho. And we have an all-in cost of that financing land, everything, of $5.3 million. We got an appraisal from CBRE at $6.3 million. So before we ever started, we knew what our potential upside was likely to be. And we all know what, what appraisals look like in today's current multifamily market and that they're a great guideline, but typically they'll trade for a little bit lower than that. And so then I went and I, I, I talked to a construction lender and a construction lender told me that he would give me 70% loan to cost. And so he was going to give me a $3.7 million construction loan, which means I had to come up with $1.8 million of my own capital. And so the syndication model went very simply like this, that I put in $250,000 and I raised another $1.55 million and we did the deal. The reality is we're in a different cycle. And, you know, appreciating that cycle is also part of what makes us a little bit more unique because we've actually gone to find our investors who are looking for growth. If you look at a value add model, can you, you see your investors are usually of two profiles. If you could really just say that they're of two profiles, you have those that want growth and you have those that want cash flow. And typically, you can divide those by age, right? There's usually a cutoff at about 50 years old that they want growth under 50 because their pile's not big enough that 7% return gets them anything other than maybe a happy meal or two, right? And then you've got those that are over 50 in their 60s, late 70s, that they don't have time to go make this money again. So whatever they have now, their lifestyle has been paired to fit. Well, the reality is we have the opportunity to do that. But what we look at is we focus on the investor that wants the growth. And we focus on involving them in something that has a 12 to 24-month life cycle. And in that 12 to 24-month, they're, they're becoming very profitable. Because what I do in that model is I say, okay, we have a million dollars in profit here. I'm going to give the syndication 35% of the upside. We don't have any waterfalls. There's nothing fancy here. It's just a very simple equation. And that 35%, if it takes us one year to build and we sell for appraisal, is in the mid-20s on the return, right? Well, the reality is it only takes nine months to build, and we've had two unsolicited offers that are closer to $7 million than 6.3. So the reality is when you do the math, it's quite lucrative. Now go one step further and make sure that whatever you're doing to do this, because you're not going to be able to claim the long-term capital gains, you're not going to be able to claim the depreciation. So you need to make sure that you're going in qualified on how you're going to deal with your taxes at the end. So now let's talk about an IRA. Let's use a self-directed IRA and let's go in, let's make this 25, 28, 32%. Let's put it back in your IRA and let's go to the next deal, right? Because nobody wants to involve that ugly uncle we got that likes to take a third or more of what we make for him, right? Right. So just unpacking that a little bit. So you're, so I understand, you know, the development, the growth, typically it's less than, than a year hold, 
Well, typically it's, it's, you know, here's the funny thing. When I tell people that I can build 36 units of brand new apartments in nine months, a lot of people question that. But in Idaho, that's just all the longer it takes, right? So we started in July. We'll have tenants begin to move in in the middle of March. We will be completely full and stabilized by, you know, April and ready to transact on the project because it's, we're not intending to hold long term. Now we could, you could even sell it to someone else that's looking to re-syndicate it to someone in the older age group that's looking for cash flow because what better cash flow could you, could you get than something that's turnkey? You don't have any deferred maintenance that you didn't find on your inspection. You don't have you know, any tree roots that have grown through your sewer lines. You've got all brand new appliances, all brand new heating and air systems. Everything's up to code. There's nothing going to kind of sneak out and bite you. So it, it really does, from an expense point of view, put you in a phenomenal place to make sure that you're hitting your objectives with your investors on what that is for a long-term hold and then just picking up the value of beating your expenses. Sure. So, I mean, it sounds like a compelling investment strategy. It's it's something that you know we haven't heard much on, on this show. So I think it's a great point of view. What are... I think the the upside, I mean, we get that. The upside is real. It sounds like great return profile. What are some of the risks associated in, in doing development and, and how do those compare with, you know, other types of deals, maybe value add deals that people are more familiar with? Well, I think I think, you know, when you really want to talk about risk, I mean, let's talk about somebody that closed on, you know, a two hundred unit apartment complex in Orlando in October of nineteen. They spent all their value add, right? They maybe they got it at ten percent under market. You know, they spent all their value add. They were fully invested in a thing come February. Now they're staring down COVID. They're in trouble. You know, vacancies in Orlando are, are because of what's happened to the tourist industry and everything like that. Vacancies in Orlando are, are struggling, right? So I picked that market on purpose. But that is there is risk there, right? People go, well, we're, we're going with value add because there's really not a lot of risk there. But there really is because at that time before you force the appreciation, you're at 110, 115% of value at what the rents are today. You've got to have that appreciation come in from the, from the increased rents. So if we shift that and we look at what's going on with, with development, the risk is in getting the developer, the builder to actually perform, Right. So 25 years in the industry, we've, we've got a track record of doing that. Some do, some don't. But the reality is if you really look at it and you look at our risk profile, we have a $3.7 million loan on a $6.3 million asset. That means that we can really go to 57.5% to technically of projected rents in the, in the appraisal and still pay the bills, right? So we could take a much bigger hit on the development side in our lease up than you could in your value add because you most models won't substantiate a 20% deviation in the rents, right? Or a vacancy that went from 5% to 13%, you know? So there's a perception there that it's that it's not safe. And the reality is it comes down to just like a value add, it comes down to who you're in business with. Are you in business with someone that has a track record of performing? Are you in business with someone that has a track record of building things on time, on budget, you know, those kinds of things? Or are you working with somebody that they've done a lot of syndications and now they're taking on a ground up? That would be almost as scary as if I did a value add, right? 
because it's just not my bag. It's not what I've done before, right? So the reality is, if you really dig into it, I would argue that ground up is actually safer than what you would find potentially in a value add. Well, it depends on a lot of factors, right? It's, it's what, what are you buying at? You know, what's your basis? You know, how, how much do you have to put into it? What are people building new? And, but I think that, I think with everything, right? I mean, there's, there's definitely a place uh, for new development. I think what you've honed in on is your investor profile, right? If you're looking for growth, overall growth, absolutely new development, you know, is going to have a, have more growth than a value add, but you're not, you're not getting that cash flow over, over the time period. So it depends on, on your investor profile and what you're looking for. And that's the reality, right? If you're identifying your investor profile and you've got the people that are looking for growth and you're doing consistently, you know, 12 or 18 month projects where you're returning 22% a year for, you know, one project to the next, to the next, to where you're, pile is now big enough. Now you have a large enough cash basis that you're able to involve yourself in cash flowing assets at that point that you've grown, right? And that's really the model that we we really like to do. I mean, before we get involved with anybody, Kent, I'm sure you do the same thing. You really vet what the investor wants, right? And understanding, you know, because we've I've done deals, I think you have too, where we've actually exceeded what we projected and the and the person's not happy, right? Because they didn't fully understand what they were getting into. I thought this was that and it wasn't, you know, I didn't like how this was represented. And the reality is it comes down to a lack of communication slash education on the investor's part, right? And if you're really looking at that and you're really identifying that, hey, you've got the right profile, what you're looking for is what I'm providing, right? Because the reality is getting my dad into a, into a ground up development, even though that's what he did all of his life, is like shoving a cat in a bathtub. It's just not going to happen, right? He's looking at that going, I can't take that risk. I don't want to be involved in that because that's not my risk profile anymore. That's not my investment profile. But I'd be more than happy to, once you've got it built, son, once you've got it stabilized, son, I will be happy to join your group then to get cash flow, right? And I think that that's the thing that a lot of people miss is that understanding of who their investor really is. Well, I think you made a good point. I mean, from the investor side too, right? Is just as an investor, understanding what your goals are, you know, where you want to get to and finding the right vehicle to get there, right? And aligning, aligning your goals, your age, you know, your, your ability to take on risk or, or not. Right. And then, yeah, understanding what the right vehicle is. So I think understanding as an investor, having an understanding that, you know, it's, I, I think 90% of the deals that, that come across my desk are value add deals. Right. I mean, there's just a lot more prevalence. So I think just educating people that there's more out there and, and telling them a little bit about the development space, I think it is the value add here. Right. When you, when you look at it, we're taking sticks and stones we're building that where the value that we're adding is the tenancy. That's the gamble, right? Is the tenant going to pay a hundred bucks more for brand new, right? Are they going to pay for that new apartment smell, right? And that's the gamble of what you're bringing into the market. And as you know, a lot of markets, especially like Idaho, like we're, we're going through a growth spurt right now where, you know, we have a 2% vacancy and have had, we have not crested three and a half percent in four years. We need more. You know, it doesn't matter if you want to do a value add, you can do that too if you can find it. 
but we need more. So there's, there's, there's demand there. You know, some of the larger markets, I mean, you know, San Francisco wouldn't exactly be a value add or wouldn't be a ground up market right now with the vacancy they have. Right. So, I mean, that, that leads to a, a great question is, you know, which markets are you operating in and how are you selecting those markets? What are the things that you look at to say, this is somewhere I want to build? You know, Kent, this is my problem. I'm just a dumb contractor. So I stay at home. I have over a thousand doors in my pipeline for the next 24 months to get built, to get syndicated. I don't have to go anywhere. I'm not smart enough to look at Idaho and then pivot run down to Tampa, Florida, look at that market, understand that market, build something there, run over to Houston, build something there. You know, and I'm a bit of a control freak in how I do things. And so I want to ensure with the certainty that I can only provide in my own backyard. So I just stay where I'm at. But again, I'm in a very target-rich environment, right? So is it is it all over Idaho? Is it specific cities you're in? Well, 75% of the population lives in a 15-mile or 30-mile radius of my house. So, I, I kind of hang out in what's called the Treasure Valley, but it's, you know, it's that southwest portion of Idaho. We are going to be moving over into Idaho Falls and the Twin Falls area, which is about two and a half, three hours away into some of those other growing markets. But, you know, the reality is we have a lot of vacant ground, a lot of bare ground to build on. And not a lot of not a lot of apartments to rehab, so it's a very natural thing for us to pick that up and do it that way. Gotcha. So I, I think you know, even though it, it happened to be that it works out that you were already living there, it sounds like there's a lot of things, a lot of factors in the market that make Idaho a good place to build ver- versus looking to do a value add. Yeah, if you Google Idaho, we just came out in a study I saw just the other day of the top 20 performing markets in COVID. For rent increases, we were in the top 10 and the bottom 20 had 13 markets in California, right? So there, there's a lot of, lot of people moving out of that from a standpoint of looking at COVID. I don't want to live with 9 million of my closest friends in a lockdown. I'm moving to Idaho, right? I mean, you know, we got open country and all this space and everything like that. And people look at it that way. So we've had a large influx already that just continues to grow. But if you Google our market, we are we are often compared to what's going on in Charlotte, North Carolina, or what's going on in Dallas in, the, in some of the larger Texas markets, but we're not that big. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've got to imagine just from a proximity standpoint, you guys are benefiting from a lot of the out-migration from the West Coast. We are. Yeah, we really are. Very good. So, you know, I know with new development, we talked about we talked about some of the, the common misconceptions, but but I know that there are some some myths out there that we may be able to dispel. So, I mean, what are the common things that that you hear or people perceive about new development that just aren't accurate? Well, you know, the the biggest one is the risk factors. You know, if you're working with seasoned developers, if you're working with seasoned builders, you know, and you're working with the guaranteed max contract. You know, everybody hears about cost overruns, you know, properly contracted build will will prevent the LPs from ever experiencing that timing. Everybody keeps asking me, how are you doing with your projects with lumber prices, right? But an experienced builder knows that when you, when you give your quote, when you're locked in and you're signing your contracts, you're locking in all of those prices. So the fact mm-hmm. that prices are moving, that will affect your next project, but it won't affect this one. I think that a lot of people worry about, you know, are we going to have to pay the the bill, the interest bill 
during construction. And, and the reality is most construction loans come with 18 to 24 months of interest built into them that give you a runway. In our case, we have, we have nine months from our completion date to stabilize 36 units. When you say there's interest built into them, explain what that means. So typically, you know, with value add, there's not as much. And I, I know that that's become a big question during COVID is how much interest reserve is built into a value add, right? There didn't used to be a lot. And so then as vacancies popped up and everybody was kind of doing their value add part, operators got into trouble. Well, with construction, you begin to advance on your $3.7 million dollars you know, $200,000, $300,000 a month for nine months until the project's built out. And the bank's wanting interest on that, right? So they set up an interest reserve because they know that you're not going to be paying interest while you're constructing. They also look at the stabilization period and they give you a stabilization runway where you're paying the interest on the full $3.7 million. So we borrowed additional funds in that 3.7 that pays that interest so that we don't have to. And people don't quite understand that. They think that as soon as it's finished, the LPs and I are going to start shelling out monthly payments that doesn't work with the rents. And the reality is you've got a rent rent that's coming in on a, as you get them rented basis. So you're, you know, your rents are slowly trickling in that nobody's accounted for. So you actually have an additional revenue stream there that you will have access to when you're all done because the bank has the full amount of the loan reserved for a period that you've agreed upon. And usually that's called out by the appraisor, by people smarter than the builder as to how long that's going to be. So there really isn't a ton of risk on that. So you're getting for that interest, that interest carry, you're you're actually getting you're financing that mm-hmm. through you're just getting yeah. additional debt to cover that. You're not raising additional equity no, no. to cover that portion. Right. And so so in that 3.7 that we borrowed, I believe that there was uh, about a third of it was bank financed and part of it, two thirds of it was equity financed because the whole number, when we look at the 5.3 million, you know, we had about $365,000 in interest carry on our funding for the period of time that gave us a full 18 months of carry. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and I think like you said, I mean, that's a good lesson learned from the development side. I think we've picked up as we do our deals. I mean, we're adding, you know, six months to a year now of, of interest carry. Just, I mean, we started doing that through through COVID, uh, we, which wasn't typically there before. So I think a good lesson picked up that's let us kind of smooth some of the ups and downs as we've gone through COVID. And what it does is it, it affects your return ever so slightly. It doesn't affect it that much, and the security that it gives everyone is is astronomical. That's right. You know, it's it's some of the best money you could ever spend, especially when you're talking to your investors and they're questioning how are you going to cover because people weren't thinking about COVID, but then again, we weren't thinking about 9/11 before it happened either. It takes catastrophes like this for people to look at it and go, "How do we better protect ourselves? How do we learn from this?" How do we become better syndicators? How do we become more savvy investors? What kind of questions are we needing to answer? Right. Right. And I think what you're getting into, I mean, even with, you know, having that extra cash around and impacting the overall return, even if it is slightly, I mean, but what you're speaking to is really what's your talking about risk adjusted return, right? So what's the risk in the deal? I think that's something people often don't take into account, right? They just look at the return numbers, 
but you're not really understanding the probability of those returns and what are the things that could go wrong and what has been done to to mitigate those things, right? So Correct. So even though the returns might be a little bit lower, it's well worth it to have that added security. Well, and you'll always find that the, that the investor that's been around the block will pick the one with the better reserve all day long because they realize that the one or 2% that they might be giving up, there's no such thing as a sure thing, but it's a much surer bet that that's actually going to be a reality. And it also speaks volumes to the experience of the syndicator, you know, to see that, hey, we've got that covered and we've, we've even made sure that even with all of that, we're, we've still got a good deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I worry about that for other investors that are, that are still still expecting the same return profile they were getting maybe three three or four years ago and seeing shiny deals that are still offering that, but not really looking in and understanding the details and, and understanding the risk associated or the, the expectations that are put in place that pits a lot on paper to that higher return. But again, what's the likelihood in this market you can still achieve the same returns you were three to five years ago? I mean, on the on the value add side, I know that it's uh, you've got to find that that special hidden gem right now to do that. In in development, though, I mean, that, so this is a great question as we compare the two. In development, how how have returns changed over the last three to five years? I mean, have you seen things tighten up, or or where are we? You know, the thing about development is that typically developers of multifamily are bigger players. They're, they're institutional players. They're, you know, they're, they're well-heeled investors. They're not what may be a, you know, typical syndication group that's got three to five years experience. These guys are, you know, so, so the returns have always pushed for, you know, strong low to mid twenties has always been kind of where we're at. And as the market heats up, that continues to stay in place in, and in a lot of cases, it's the new development that drives the pricing on value add, right? Because when a guy looks at a value add and go, well, they just built this new one down here and look at what they're getting for that. That's what they paid to build it. Mine must be worth X dollars, right? And, and, and you know, you hear the argument all the time of, well, you know, in a COVID type of environment, class A is going to suffer. But what I think it's really shown is that people looked around and said, I don't want to live in a dump. I want to live in the best I could afford. And class A has done very well during COVID from what I've seen. And so what I see a lot of people look at is they look at that and they go, what's this going to do? And the reality is that new development kind of always stays where it's at because it is fundamentally anchored by, number one, it's anchored by appraisals and banking. Whereas value add, you can mix your own Kool-Aid, you know, you can run your own spreadsheet, you can make it say a lot of whatever you want. And the, the lending side is done on the actuals. It's not done on the pro forma, right? So you're, you're going on actuals and anything over and above that is your special sauce that you're selling. I can't do that. You know, sometimes I wish I could because there's deals I really wanted to do, but the numbers would not work for what mm-hmm. I needed my returns to be. And I was... I was given the insight by CBRE or by, you know, any of these national appraisal firms that do multifamily. So it really kind of keeps us a little bit grounded. And then we look at it and we're competing with, you know, Walker Dunlap does a lot of financing for Kennedy Wilson and some of these other guys that, you know, they know what their margin has to be. And because of their size, we can just hover right underneath that. Gotcha. Okay. It's, it's really, 
tattling on myself, I don't have to really invent anything. I just have to follow the big guys and follow what the appraiser says and just don't make any too many stupid mistakes. Well, you know, success leaves clues, right? And you don't have to reinvent the wheel to- uh, Be successful. To be successful. Yeah, exactly right. So just digging into the weeds a little bit with you, I am curious, you you touched on how the deals are structured a little bit. Could you go more into that? Talk about, you you know, you said you're not doing waterfalls and things, but how are the deals structured and, and how do the investors, like when and how do they receive their returns? Sure. So we're very simply, we do, you know, on, on our multifamily, we've come up with it. To, just the simplest way to do it is when we look at the overall structure, we look for the return that's, that's going to make sense. And then we, we literally sell out that portion of the shares, right? So instead of it being, you know, a GPLP situation where, you know, the GP can earn more or earn less, we go in with a fixed anticipation. We sold 35% of the project for 1.55 in capital raised. So the reality is when we're sitting there at the closing table, I don't even need anything more than a very simple calculator to know what each person is going to be getting in a return, right? Because we know that at the end of the day, we've got a guaranteed maximum contract. So the, the builder cannot charge any more than he proposed. We know what our strike price is. It's at appraisal. Anything above and beyond that is going to be gravy for everybody. And they know that at the end of the day, they're going to get back their initial investment and their portion of that 35%. And so that makes it a very simple equation. We're doing some other stuff in some industrial where we're doing some ground up industrial space where we've got a little bit of a hybrid because we're we've got some people that like the risk, but they also like the tax benefits of long-term cash flow, the tax incentives that are involved with the bonus depreciation and the cost segregation studies. And so we've got some where, you know, we're doing a deal where it's a twenty thousand square foot warehouse. We're raising, you know, again, one point one million dollars on a three point three million dollar project. Once we're built and stabilized, we're gonna have a value near four million. So we'll refinance with a permanent debt structure out of a life insurance company. And we'll return about 75% of the investor's initial cash in a 12-month period of time. So now they've got the majority of their cash back. They're sitting on about an 18% cash on cash return for the next 10 years, right? Then they've got their their bonus depreciation and their other stuff. So we just do, it's fairly simple what we do just because we're fairly quick on our turn. You mentioned the bonus depreciation in that example, but are you able to take advantage of like cost segregation and getting that bonus depreciation on a new development? Unfortunately, we don't hold it long enough to do that. That's why we like to sit down with our investor beforehand and ask them where their source of capital is coming from, because it's always beneficial. Even if it's non-qualified IRA funds, it's always best to run it through something like that that will defer the taxes to a later date because it does come back to you as ordinary income. Yeah, that makes sense. So you want to invest in uh, some sort of tax advantaged Correct. investment vehicle, right? Because you know as well as I do if you're getting a if you're getting a 30% return and you're giving 30% of that return away before you reinvest it a second time, you're not going to go there as fast as if you come into a tax advantage situation where you put it through a non-qualified IRA and then invest it. It grows. It goes back into your IRA after ten years. Maybe you decide you're you're wanting to pay the penalties and the fees, 
and pay the taxes, but your amount grew so much larger, you're going to wind up a much better position at that time than having done it the other way. Right. Yeah. That, that hurts to have to pay ordinary income on this stuff. It's so. very de-incentivizing. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Well, Shannon, thanks for going in the weeds a little bit. I, I think it's important for investors to know how, how the deals actually work and, and how they're structured. As we wrap things up here, I want to move into our keys to success. And I've got four questions for you. I want you to share with our listeners. First one is, think about it as, as an investor going into your deal. You know, What's the one question an investor should be asking if they only get one? You know, I think the the question that the investor really should be asking is, is this deal for me? Is my, you know, you and I kind of touched on it, but is my investor profile this investor profile? So that their experience is, I mean, 80% of the experience of being an investor in a deal is how you are perceiving that deal to happen. And so I found that if if the investor has looked at it and they understand it and they're you know, they've, they've obviously gone through the due diligence, they've qualified the people, but is this, even though they love the deal, is this a deal that they're going to be happy with, with their investor profile and what, they, what they're able to look at for risk scenarios? Right. I, I think that's a great point. And that goes to, to something we hit on this show a lot, which is as an investor, you have to start with your own goals, right? And keep your own goals in mind and you have to align your investments that way. Otherwise, like you said, even though it could be a good investment, but you'll never be happy because it's not giving you what you need at that point in time. And that changes as you evolve and as, as you grow wealth. Correct. So what are you most proud of in your career? I'm most proud of my reputation. And I know that sounds a little bit egotistical, but I'm very proud of the fact that, that I can take you to anybody I've ever built for and get a cup of coffee. I can introduce you to anyone I've ever worked with and you're going to have you're going to hear good things about me. Not because that's what I strive for is to hear good things about me, but it's because we did our job well. And it's because we took care of the customer and it wasn't all about it wasn't necessarily about the money, it was about the customer satisfaction. And th- sometimes that's been expensive, but at the end of the day you can't buy a reputation like that. And you certainly can't fix a reputation that's been damaged by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it only takes one bad deal, right? Yeah. And what's one book that everybody should be reading? Everybody already already goes to Kiyosaki's book. We're going to assume you read that one. The one book that I think everybody should be reading is uh, Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference. Mm-hmm. It's really changed the perspective of how I even interact in basic conversation. Not that I need to negotiate with my kids or my wife you know, from an FBI standpoint, but it really opens you up to hearing what they're saying and identifying what they're wanting out of this conversation so that you can make sure that as their objectives are met, so are yours. Yeah, that's a great book. I've, I've read it twice and uh, it's definitely done wonders for me on, I mean, I would say hundreds of thousands of dollars in value through that book from specific negotiations that, that I've, I've followed their tactics and, and they've worked. So definitely recommend that book as well. Awesome. And last but not least, what's your number one key to success? Tenacity. You know, the reality is if you don't keep doing it, if you don't keep grinding, if you don't stay after it, you're never going to get there. I mean, there's nobody out there that's achieved huge success that put in mediocre effort. You know, I I haven't found a story yet uh, of anyone that has gotten to the pinnacle of success 
with a mild work ethic, with a, well, that didn't work, let's try something else. You know, you don't often hear of entrepreneurs that have tried a hundred different businesses. You hear that they've tried a hundred different versions of the business they finally succeeded at, but you don't often hear that they quit this and they quit that and they, they work for this guy and then they quit that. You know, and so just being tenacious and just staying after and staying driven toward your goal and staying single-mindedly focused on getting there, it, to me, that's, I believe, the only thing that creates that success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have a process or a routine that you go through to maintain that focus? You know, I've been doing this for 25 years. And I, I've, I remember one time when I was a, a young man and I was very frustrated. And my dad just told me, he said, you know, if you're in the major leagues and you strike out, two-thirds of the time, you're still going to have a, a 0.333 batting average and you're still going to make millions of dollars. And if you just get up and you just swing again, you'll be fine. And there's been so many times in my life when I have sat there and just known that I just have to get up and I have to go stand at the plate and I have to swing again and I've got to put together another deal and I've got to put something else out there and I've got to do this. And, and it's worked. And I just... You know, I, I don't know that it's necessarily a routine other than it's just an undisputed truth in my life that I've always known. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you were raised, Kent, but if my dad said it, it was usually and it, it proved to be true in my life all the time. What my father said worked. And so I've always just kind of leaned on what dad said. And I've always known that dad said to do it. If I go do it, it's going to work. And it absolutely does. Not just because my dad said it. <laughs> now, that, I mean, tenacity and singular focus and, and just continue to go after. I love the baseball analogy. I think that really rings true, right? You, you know, you're never going to have, have 100% success, but if you keep going after it, I mean, you'll reach it eventually. Yeah. I mean, for years, Babe Ruth was known for being, you know, the home run king, but he also held the record for the most strikeouts. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for, for being here today and, and sharing a ton of value with, with our listeners. Uh, for folks that, that want to learn more about what you're doing, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah. So you can find us on all the social platforms, you know, shannonrobnet.com. My Vertical Equity is our investing platform. So you can go there, find out about the deals we've got cooking. But easiest way is just shannonrobnet.com. Awesome. Well, that's easy enough. Well, Shannon, thank you again for being on the show and uh, looking forward to doing it again. Yeah, thank you. I can't thank you enough for allowing me to come on and share some knowledge. I hope your listeners got something out of it. Definitely. I'm sure they did. Appreciate it again, Shannon. Have a good one. All right. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.